All right, tonight we continue our look at dispensationalism. This morning was all about the Palestinian covenant. We spent two hours on it. Not going to review everything, but we covered everything I think we could possibly do with the Palestinian covenant. We definitely finished everything Schofield had to say. I think we have a pretty good understanding. I'm more than aware that some of the things with the Palestinian covenant, some of those things feel like they actually kind of belong to the new covenant in some, some ways. I mean, we could get into some of the like, why, do you, why are you placing this here? But there's no question there's a covenant being made in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, there's no question there, right? Uh, and we know it's a covenant different than the one made earlier because he literally says that, right? So we know it's a new covenant, so we have to call it a covenant. Uh, and then Deuteronomy 30 seems to give some specific things about it, and that's where he, he built it. Uh, so part of me wants to continue on with the covenant line, but since we're kind of going back and forth, then we know what we need to do tonight, right? Tonight's back to the dispensations, okay? So we have covered the dispensation of innocency. We have covered the dispensation of conscience. We have uh, covered the dispensation of human government. We've covered the dispensation of promise we have covered the dispensation of and so that leads us to the dispensation of grace and we are to jump to where well according to the 1917 the verse that he has here is john 117 is where he says to jump to um we'll we'll see what notes are there john chapter 1 verse 17 because remember a law goes till when Yeah, it goes all the way till really the crucifixion. So the fact that he puts this at John 1.17 is a little interesting. But John 1.17, and note that uh, there is no note here at this point, uh, no heading here. It's just we have this verse, and you can see maybe why he wants us to uh, start here. John 1.17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, okay? So, he then has um, a note here for grace, which I kind of want to read, but we'll skip it for now. We'll skip it for now, because if I'm not careful, this will turn into a whole discussion about grace. But we'll let, we'll let the dispensationalism see where it leads us, okay? So, he, he has a note on grace, and then at the, underneath that, he has, as a, disp- as a dispensation... All right. Grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ. All right. So as far as a dispensation is concerned, we need to really, it begins where? No, with the death and resurrection, with the death and resurrection of Christ, with the death and resurrection. He, he starts in John 1, 17, just simply because the verse says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by by Jesus Christ, but then in his note, he says, as a dispensation, please note, as a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ. That's very important because as a dispensation. Now, if the dispensation begins with the death and resurrection of Christ, then that would mean that a good portion of the New Testament is actually falls under which dispensation? The dispensation of law which could have profound impact on one, how one may interpret some of it, okay? And I think that's very important, especially with things like the Sermon on the Mount, which we've discussed in great detail um, over the years, okay? Now, he gives a number of scriptures, so let's look at them. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Romans 3, and he said, which verses? 24 to 26 is what he said, all right? And so we'll start right here. I'm going um, to go to verse 21, Romans 3. I'm going to start with verse 21, um, and he calls this, hang on, I'm looking back at my notes here. Yeah, I'm going to start in 21. I know he says to start in 24, but that's okay. We'll go to Romans 3.21. The note here is justification defined. 
So this has something to do with justification. He goes, but now the righteousness of God, three very important words, without the law, without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So now a law, now so Paul in Romans begins to speak of a righteousness that is apart or without the law, all right? Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Okay, how, do, how is this righteousness obtained or how does this right, righteousness show up? By faith, apart from the law and by faith, okay? Uh, and this, we, we refer to this as what? Imputed righteousness, right? Okay, very important. Um, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus. And because this is all by faith, all, because this is a righteousness without the law, then what does verse 27 say? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without what? Without the deeds of the law. We are justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now make this very clear. If you come along and then say, but your deeds prove your justification, then you're still saying that you're justified by what? By the law, right? I mean, everyone understand that, right? I don't care how many churches try to play this game. They'll say, no, you're not justified by keeping the law, but doing, keeping the law is what proves your justification. You're still saying you're justified by the law, which destroys the entire concept, okay? So he wants us to look at Romans 3, uh, 24 through 26. He also wants us to look at Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Romans 4, 24 through 25. What do we have in Romans 4, 24 through 25? Romans 4, starting in verse 20, verse 24. Yeah, Romans chapter 4, verse 24. Okay, everybody there? All right. Romans 4, 24. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed, all right, imputed, if we believe on him that raised Jesus, uh, Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So we have a little bit of the doctrine of uh, imputation right there, right? Look at verse 22. And therefore it was, Romans 4, 22, imputed to him for righteousness. Everyone see Romans 4, 22? And it, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not, now it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe. There is a righteousness that is imputed, that's accredited to our account, that is by faith, has nothing to do with what we do. That, that is, that is what we, uh, that is what we have here when it comes to the, uh, the dis- dis- dispensation. All right. So now here we go. He goes, as a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ. He wants us to see Romans 3, 24 through 26, Romans 4, 24 through 25, which we have read. And his note on John chapter 1. Yeah, John chapter 1. Yeah, yeah, John chapter 1. Yeah, verse 17. Yeah. All right, so here we go. As a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ. Romans 3, 24 through 26. Romans 4, 24 through 25. The point of testing. Now here's, this is the point. Remember, the dispensations, he say, have what? A test. All right, so now it's interesting that you would have a test under a dispensation of grace, right? Seems kind of weird. So like, what, how, how is this going to work? All right, so he, now what is the point of the testing here? 
the point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation, but acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. Now, there's a little bit of concern that this note could produce. Okay, yeah, you probably don't have this because this note created much controversy, okay? Does everyone see the... Let me read it slowly and see if you can catch on to the controversy. All right, here we go. I'm going to read the whole note again. As a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ, Romans 3, 24 through 26, Romans 4, 24 through 25. The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation, but acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. Stop right here. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll read the whole I'll read the whole thing again. Here we go. All right. All right, so the point of, of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation, but acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. But acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. And let me know when you have that down. Then I'll. As a fruit of salvation. All right, you see that note? What controversy could that produce? Because I think that note is no longer in the later editions of Schofield. See if anybody can figure it out. If anybody can figure out the possible problem that note would cause (laughs) and why it's probably not in any future editions of Schofield. Okay, well, kind of. Okay, when you say no longer, what are you implying? There you go. All right, this creates the dispensational belief from, by some that people were not saved by grace in previous dispensations. Their salvation was dependent upon, how does the notes read? Their obedience to the law. All right. I, of course, yeah, because you can see why this would generate some controversy, right? You can see because what does that say? The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation. That seems to infer that there was a time legal obedience was the basis of salvation. Well, um, may, maybe, I, I, think, I think the point is, I think, I think throughout church history, many people would look at the Old Testament and go, you're telling me they were saved by grace? I think a lot of people would bring that up, right? A lot of people would be like, where is it? Now, what you have to do is you have to go to Romans and say, well, or, or go to, basically the only one you really, the one you really have is Abram, right? By faith, it was, accounted, it was counted him as righteousness. But, but I mean, saying if you're just reading the Old Testament, if you're just reading through, I mean, we got to at least be honest with this, right? I, I, people can get mad and, and try to argue with me, but just, just take your Bible and just start reading. What does it look like in the Old Testament? Do this, live. Don't do this, and you're going to die. So it'd be very hard not to draw some kind of conclusion that something was different back then. And it seems radically different in the New Testament, right? Everyone has to acknowledge it seems way different in the New, uh, New Testament. Now we can, we in our minds, we can paint it over with a, a brush and a painting 
and go, and we can just write the word grace above it all. And everybody sitting in the pew says, amen, that's so beautiful. But when you get away from all of the Christianese and you just start reading the text, it feels very graceless, right? Like grace is missing at times because it's very much do this or you die, do this or you die. And then judgment just comes and people are destroyed and people are killed and snakes come in and bite people and the ground opens up and swallows people and fire comes out and burns up people. And it's just like, go kill everyone, slaughter everyone. And you're like, where is the grace? Do I? Yeah, one mistake and you're dead. So you can understand where there could be some confusion, right? I mean, I think you got to be honest with that. So now the, the new Schofields, they do what with this note? Okay, so so they wanted to make it very clear. Hey, even in the previous dispensation, you still will say by grace. Putting forth and, and basically looking to the sacrificial system, which supposedly was pointing to Christ, right? All right, so they, had to, uh, they clarified that. Now, the thing is that what year are we looking at? Which uh, edition? 67. Okay, Schofield died. Can someone look on uh, Google really quick and tell me what year Schofield died? I know he's dead before that Bible is produced. I know he's dead. But we can just verify that. Yeah. Nineteen twenty one? Okay, so he's dead before that comes along. So let's just make that very clear. So I don't know what Schofield would have said. Now we'd have to try to trace back you know, notes that came later. Maybe he tried to clarify, but you could see it was going to create some controversy, right? Because a lot of people will be like, absolutely not. That's unheard of. That's, that's heresy. It's always been by grace alone, faith alone, because of Christ alone. I know we love to say that. I will just say this, and I, and, and I don't care who gets offended. When you read the Old Testament, it's hard sometimes to see that. There, there are times you do see it, Right? Sometimes you see these great pictures of mercy and grace, and then there's other cases you're kind of like, what is going on here? It's death and destruction and, and do, 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 do this. So, but he, he makes it very clear that he thinks the test, now do they mention a test in your notes? Okay, they, they don't have any test. They mention, don't mention any test, all right? So what he says the test ultimately is now is what? I'll go ahead and continue reading so you can see what he believes the test actually is. Yeah, well, under this dispensation of grace, right? The dispensation of grace, the test actually is, it's no longer legal obedience to the condition of salvation, but um, uh, legal obedience as the condition of salvation, but acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. So he says, ultimately, the test is what? Whether you believe or don't believe. Now, it is also written that it could create another problem. What was the other part that's written here that could create kind of another test? The fruit, right? Because now it's like, okay, wait. So the t- first test is, do you believe or not believe? But even after you believe, there's a second test. And that second test is, show me those good works. And if you have enough, you prove it. And if you don't have enough, you don't prove it, and so your salvation still is dependent somehow on how many works you're doing or not doing, all right? And we could have a long, never-ending uh, debate about that, all right? Now, here we go. You ready? The immediate result of this testing, here comes the immediate result of this testing, was the rejection of Christ by the Jews and his crucifixion by Jew and Gentile. The immediate result of this testing was basically failure because of the rejection and crucifixion of Christ, if you want to sum, uh, summarize it or simplify it. And he says to see Acts 4.27. Someone look at Acts 4.27. Acts 4.27.
chose Christ, right? So he mentions who? Herod? Who else? Pilate? And Gentiles? And the Jews? Yeah, all right. So all of them are involved here, right? In other words, they all conspire to kill Jesus. He says this is the immediate result of this dispensation. Now, the only problem is if the dispensation doesn't begin till Christ is crucified, then how can they, this be the failure of it? See, it's kind of, the timing is a little off, right? Yeah, but, if, but, but they can't be failing a dispensation that they're not yet in. You see, you see, right? So sometimes, just so that we know, in the night... In 1917, trying to figure out some of the timing and the beginning and ending of these dispensations is a little shaky. Does, ever, does everyone understand that? Right? Does, uh, and your Bibles, the older uh, Schofields, do they give the start time for this dispensation? Does it just say it starts with the death? Or does it start with the coming of Christ and the first advent in John 1.17? Okay. See? Okay, and it's fullness. See, I, yeah. They try to offer a little bit of leeway there, do they not? But you, do you see my problem, right? If, 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 wait a minute, if the failure of the test is when they crucify him, well, they can't be failing a dispensation that doesn't start till after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Do you see, see that issue? Does that make sense? All right, okay. Just so that you see that. So we have a little bit of problem there, and I think, I think it's okay to at least acknowledge that. Now, look at this. This is interesting. That's the immediate result, supposedly. The predicted end of the testing of man under grace. What do you think the predicted end of the testing of man under grace is? What do you think is the predicted end of this testing? Or the predicted end of the testing of man under this dispensation? No. The predicted end is the apostasy of the professing church. The predicted end of this testing. In other words, do what? No, that's Timothy. Timothy. Because Revelation, the church is pretty much gone if they would believe in chapter 3. right? The beginning of chapter 4, the church is gone. All right, but, all right, so let's make sure this is interesting because all of the dispensations are filled with tests and they always fill with, they're filled with what? Failure, failure, failure. So he's got to have this dispensation all filled with failure to some level, right? So it starts with the failure of them killing the Messiah and then it ends, in a sense, the ending of the testing is with the apostasy of the professing church. And that, and what scripture is he going to give for this? 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. He's got a, I think he's going to have a lengthy note here. Okay, well, not a major lengthy note, but he's got one here. All right. All right, here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also that in, last, in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away." I'll stop right here, make sure it's very clear. Anytime you ever hear a sermon and they start looking at the news or telling you what's going on in the culture and saying this is describing what's going on in the culture, they are not interpreting the passage right. This is about what's happening where? In the church, in the church, in the church. I've tried to explain this uh, so many times. Why do I know it's, it's referencing the church? First, Paul is writing to Timothy about the church. Secondly, what's the key verse that gives it away? It's verse 4. 
They're traitor, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. How would that ever describe the culture? That would describe the culture when? At all times, right? That would describe the culture at all times, right? Yeah, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. This is describing the church. The time is coming where the church will apostatize. The church will fall completely and utterly away, all right? And it says, for of this sort are they which creep into houses, lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lust, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, all right? So he, he talks about all of this. Now at the bottom, he gives us this. He says this in his note, apostasy uh, differs therefore from error concerning truth, which may be a result of ignorance or heresy, which may do to the snare of Satan, both of which may consist with true faith. All right, so he says that uh, er- error, th- theological error, and theological heresy may consist with true faith. Apostasy does not. The apostate is perfectly described in 2 Timothy. Apostates depart from the faith, but not from the outward profession of Christianity. All right, so according to him, theological error can consist with faith, and heresy can consist with faith. Apostasy cannot, because apostates do what? Depart from the faith, but they continue to claim. They still claim Christianity. They still claim their profession of Christianity. All right? That's very important for the way he, he wants us to understand apostasy. And he's saying that this dispensation, that's where it's going to, that's going to be, in a sense, the final test. So under the dispensation of grace, it starts with a failure. They kill Christ. And it ends with failure. The professing church is going to become completely apostate. I don't think the average Christian ever truly gives that any thought of what that's going to look like. Because that will mean that as a Christian, you will not be going where? To church. And nobody knows what to do with that or how to even process that. Right, I mean, just the church in general is going to be apostate. So there's not going to be any place to go. So the true believers are going to be outside the church and the inside of the church are going to be apostatized. So then what, what are the, then the people outside of the church, if they start forming to meet, do you call it a church? I don't know. It's going to be weird. It's going to be some kind of underground situation. I don't know what it's going to look like, but that seems to be. Now, again, please note his eschatology here is not agreed upon by uh, all, all systems, but his system believes that this is really the way it's going to go. All right, everybody see that? Okay. Um, so he says, uh, so the predicted end of the testing of man under grace is the apostasy of the professing church and the resultant apocalyptic judgments. All right, then he continues on. I'm going to continue reading here. Grace has a twofold manifestation in salvation and in the walk and service of the saved. So he just says grace has a twofold manifestation in salvation uh, and in the walk and service of the saved. So it basically the twofold manifestation, number one is in salvation and number two in the walk and service of the saved. Now that, that we could have a little bit of problem here because he's going to pretty much probably act that in salvation, what happens? He's going to kind of make an argument for this, that in salvation, grace first is manifested that we're saved apart from works, right? Okay, everybody got that. The second way it's manifested is in the life of a believer. So we're going to argue that grace will do what? It's going to produce something. It's going to, once again, it's back to some kind of, almost like an infusion of something. In fact, I'll give you the scriptures that he gives here because I think they're important, all right? So the first one is Romans 3.24, which we've already read, correct? Meaning we're saved apart from works. Got you? Everybody got that? Okay. And then he quotes Romans 6.15. What happens in Romans 6.15? 
And this is where the debate always happens. And the minute you mention anything, people get mad and people get upset. And God forbid. Now, guess what? I completely agree. Because guess how it reads? What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. We shouldn't. Can we all agree that we shouldn't sin? Right. We shouldn't. But guess what? There, there, remember, there's two aspects to this. There's one aspect that we don't sin. Don't sin in Christ. We're perfect. But in practice, we do. Remember, remember, this goes back to the end of Romans 7, which nobody ever wants to quote, where Paul himself says, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The law of sin. Remember the, the, the key verse there in Romans 7? That every time I bring up, people lose their minds and they get mad at me. I didn't write it. Paul wrote it. Okay? So we have to understand this. So um, his dispensation of grace, it's got a kind of a weird timing. It's kind of a weird timing. I, I don't know where you quite try to, to do so. Um, he seems to distinguish it from the previous. We do know this. When you look at the timing of the law compared to the timing after Christ, it does look radically different. I think we all have to acknowledge that. We all have to acknowledge that, right? If you look at the time under the law and the time after Christ, but not, unless we understand that the time under the law was simply to demonstrate what over and over and over to them. That they couldn't, 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 and that I was all all it was supposed to do was show them that they couldn't. Now, if if you if if we interpret it that way, then that entire period was to show that they couldn't, and then the period of grace is simply a period where we all acknowledge that we can't and find comfort in what Christ did. Right. That that that's the only thing that makes any sense. Okay. All right. Now, what's the next dispensation? We're moving quick. We're moving. Someone said it? Kingdom, and that is found where? Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I know we should probably jump back to the covenant, but that's okay. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, the, the, covenants, and the, the covenants and the dispensations were staying pretty close together, right? Until promise and Abrahamic. Then they kind of split. So at this point, we'll, I think we'll just follow the dispensation all the way till the end and maybe we can finish it tonight. We'll see how big the next one is, all right? Okay. Um, it's, hang on, I'm going to go back to John. Uh, he has down here for Kingdom Ephesians 1.10. Ephesians 1.10. All right, everybody ready? Ephesians 1.10, this is the first time we actually see the word. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. There's the first time we have the word dispensation, at least in the King James. All right. Now, this is sometimes he referred to it as the dispensation of kingdom, right? But the note calls it something else, at least in, in the 1917. He calls it the dispensation of the fullness of times. The dispensation of the fullness of times. What is it, what is he referencing in uh, Yah's versions or the versions you guys have? What? Oh, no note. Interesting. Okay, no note in yours? Okay. Yeah, well, we could, that's kind of, dispensation is a period of time, right? So, 110. Interesting. Okay. 
All right. We may have some changes here. That's okay. That's okay. All right. Yeah, this is, this is broken down a little differently, right? So, but we wanted to go back to the original. No note? All right. Let's read what he has to say in 1917. Everybody ready? Here we go. Now, I do like, if, if I was going to break it down personally, right, I do like going from the dispensation of law and calling the second one the dispensation of the church. And the reason why is the church, I, no matter what anyone wants to say, I, uh, I, I say the church and Israel are two different things. And once you get to the church, everything is radically different than it was in Israel. So I, I, I think uh, that, that's a better way. But he has dispensation of grace in 1917. And then he calls this the dispensation of the fullness of times. Are you ready? Okay, now he goes, this is the seventh and last of the ordered ages which condition human life on earth. Oh, okay, interesting, okay. He says, uh, so this is, all right, oh boy, okay, we, well, there's so much we could do here, there's so much here, okay. All right, we gotta put our thinking caps on here, or we gotta do some work here, okay. All right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in Ephesians now because we gotta do some work here, but we'll, we'll get to Revelation at some point. All right, here we go. Listen to this carefully and see if you catch this. Everybody ready? All right, this, the seventh and last of the ordered ages, which condition human life on the earth. Please note, there's a condition there. Condition, test, right? All right. And it is identical with the kingdom covenanted to David. All right, this is the, so in other words, this is where he brings the two back together. Which two things are we going to have now linked together? The Davidic covenant, dispensation of kingdom, or he calls it the dispensation of fullness of times. He's going to link these two together. So I almost now want to go jump to the Davidic uh, covenant, but we'll, st- we'll, we'll force ourselves to stay here. All right? Now he tells us to look at some scriptures. Let's just do this, this quick. Oh, there's a bunch here. Let's go through these quickly. Let's go ahead and go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Oh, see, he's going to force me to go back to the Davidic covenant. Oh, man, what is he doing? What is he doing? Why are you doing this, Schofield? Why, why, why? 2 Samuel chapter 7. He wants us to start in verse 8. Oh, do I want to go there? Okay, um, I'm, we're just gonna we're gonna read it the way he gives it because this this almost is forcing us to skip over to the Davidic covenant. It's almost, but I'm gonna try my best not to. All right. So he wants us to look at Second Samuel seven, starting in verse eight. Everybody there? Second Samuel seven eight. Now therefore, so shall thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat from from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. Now you look at Second Samuel 7.10. You can immediately go, wait a minute. Something obviously went horribly wrong, right? Or that's not filled, all right? And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when the days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, that that sounds, uh, okay, like how do we understand that? Verse 14, I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he committed 
iniquity. I will chasten him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And and I think me and Sarah agreed that the word forever (laughs) means forever. Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay, I will always laugh about that whole debate. All right, according, according to all these words and according to all the vision, all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. All right, now that establishes a throne, that establishes a king, that establishes something forever, okay? And that, listen, what we just read is connected to the Davidic covenant, but I'm not gonna, we're not gonna jump to that right now, even though I want to, even though I want to, Okay. All right, go to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Verse 8. Zechariah 12, 8. Everybody there? And in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David and the house of David shall be as God and the angel of the Lord before them. Right? Sounds like something significant is going to happen, does it not? And once again, it's connected with whom? David. All right. Remember, he says this is exactly like the covenant with, with David. Look at uh, Luke 1, 31 through 33. Luke 1, 31 through 33. Luke 1, 31 through 33. Everyone there? Here we go. What do we read here? Uh, uh, verse 31, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever of his kingdom. There shall be no end. Clearly that did not happen in the first coming, did it not? All right. So that means either it has to be not, when it refers to Jacob, it's not referring to Israel. It's referring to the church, which we don't believe. And so you see where we have a lot of of issues here and why this is so important. All right. He also wants you to see 1 Corinthians 15, 24. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. What do we find here? First Corinthians 15, 24, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, a kingdom to God, even the father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power back to a kingdom, back to ruling, back to all of these types of concepts that we have talked about now numerous times. All right, now let me go back to Ephesians. Back to Ephesians. Here we go. Back to this lengthy note that he has here. Okay. So we got, do we have all those scriptures down now? All right. Then he says, and get, so let me read this all again. This is the seventh and last of the ordered ages, which condition human life on the earth. It is identical with the kingdom covenanted to, to David. We looked at 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17, Zechariah 12, 8, Luke 1, 31 through 33, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and gathers into itself under Christ all past times. All right, so he's going to gather into itself, this dispensation, all the past times into Christ. And then he begins to list these out. All right. He's going to list all of these past times out. 
not yet, not yet. I mean, at some point, and he's getting there. He's getting to that. He hasn't mentioned it yet. I mean, some of those things, obviously, there's no other way. I mean, when Christ is ruling and reigning, it has to be where? It has to be the millennial reign, right? Okay. Uh, other than if you say that he's doing this in the church. If you say he's doing it in the church, then he's ruling over Jacob. So Jacob doesn't mean Israel. And then you're right back to all of these prob- problems again. Okay. All right. So he's going to gather into itself unto Christ. Uh, okay. So this kingdom, the covenant of David, all right, uh, and gathers into itself under Christ all past times. Number one, the time of oppression and misrule ends by Christ taking his kingdom. The time of oppression and misrule ends with Christ taking his kingdom. So all of the pastimes are going to kind of just kind of be now wrapped up in this, in this dispensation. And it's going to do, uh, take care of the time of oppression and misrule. It's going to end by Christ taking his kingdom. All the time of oppression and misrule that have occurred in the past, it's going to end when Christ takes his kingdom. And he points to Isaiah 11, 3 through 4. We won't read it right now for time because I do want to finish this one if we can. All right, everybody got that one? All right, so the time of oppression and misrule ends by Christ. Number two, the time of testimony and divine forbearance ends in judgment. Uh, he definitely mentions Matthew 25 here. Yes. He also mentions uh, Revelation chapter 20, 7 through 15. And he also mentions Acts 17, 30 through 31. But we'll just, our job is just to understand basically here, the time of testimony and divine forbearance ends in judgment. Whatever grace or forbearance or peace he gave or, or mercy he showed in the past now is all going to end in judgment. All right, number three. Everybody got that one down? The time of testimony and divine forbearance ends in judgment. Number three. The time of toil ends in rest and reward. The time of toil ends in rest and reward. He has 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. The time of toil ends with rest and reward. Number four. The time of suffering ends in glory. Romans 8, 17 through 18. The time of suffering ends in glory. Romans 8, 17 through 18. The time of suffering ends in glory. Number five. The time of Israel's blindness and chastisement ends in restoration and conversion. The time of Israel's blindness and chastisement ends in restoration and conversion. Yeah, yeah, clearly this is what this is all, I mean, that's where he's, he's not directly stated that yet, but I mean, all of this is all pointing to it, right? He's not given that answer yet, but clearly that's the only way to find the answer, right? He's got Romans 11, 25 through 27, which we read this morning. He's got Ezekiel 39, 25 through 29, which we read a part of Ezekiel this morning. He's going to go to those same passages we've already read, or at least close to it. All right. Number six, the time of the Gentiles end and the smiting of the image and the setting up of the kingdom of heaven. And he quotes Daniel uh, 2, uh, 34 and 35 and Revelation 19, 15 through 21, which we read this morning. Because now Christ comes back, right? That's, if, if Revelation 19 is the true second advent, then he comes back with a sword and he's going to slaughter the nations. It's going to be judgment. It's destroying Israel's enemies. He's going to set up his throne. All of those things that we have been alluding to. Um, that's a prophecy in Daniel. If you look at Daniel 2, he's got a, uh, he has a vision of an image. And then, yeah, we'd have, to get, we'd have to get into all the prophecy there. Okay. Now, this one, we'll have to see who, who knows what this is referencing here. Everybody ready? Here's number seven. Notice he broke this down into seven. Of course. Right. Does, does anyone have any of these notes in theirs? Has, you have all of these notes? Okay, tell me if you have the same word here, because I'm not familiar with this word. 
the time of creation's bondage. He has the word, are you ready? T-H-R-A-L-D-O-M. Thraldom. <laughs> that's a new one on me too, all right? I'm assuming it means bondage, all right? That's what we're going to go with. So I want to look up thraldom and see. I'm just going to be honest with you. I do not know this word. I'm not even going to pretend that I do. It's got to mean bondage. That's what I'm going with. It's got to be an old English word. Thraldom. The time of creation's thraldom. Okay, there we go. So we're just going to call it bondage because everybody, uh, we're going to correct the way they spoke in the past because it was wrong. Okay, all right, here we go. All right, the time of creation's bondage ends in deliverance at the manifestation of the sons of God. And then, well, he quotes a number of scriptures here. All right, so he calls, on one place he calls it the dispensation of kingdom. Here it's referred to as the dispensation of the fullness of time. It's the seventh and last of the ordered ages, which conditions human life earth. It is identical with the kingdom covenanted to David. We looked at all of those scriptures, and here's the most important part. All of this gathers itself under Christ all past times. All past times now are going to get wrapped up in Christ. And what was the first time? Number one, the time of oppression and misrule ends by Christ taking his kingdom. Number two, the time of testimony and divine forbearance ends in judgment. Yes. Number three, the time of toil ends in rest and reward. I don't know if I said rest and reward, but it's there. The time of toil ends in rest and reward. Number four, the time of suffering ends in glory. Number five, the time of Israel's blindness and chastisement ends in restoration and conversion. Number six, the times of the Gentiles end and the smiting of the image and the setting up of the kingdom of heaven. And again, Daniel 2, 34 and 35 is where you'd have to go for that smiting of the image uh, concept. All right. And then next, the time of creation's bondage ends and deliverance at the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, very important, Okay. All of these past times, this is very important from a hermeneutical standpoint. All of those past times that he just referred to, do those speak of a literal time where those literal things were literally happening? Literal suffering? Right, but I mean literally spiritually blinded, right? right? Literally in bondage, all of those things were literal, right? So he believes that the, these will all be then literally done away with when Christ literally takes his throne. He's looking for a literal fulfillment. What mo- many people do is like, yes, all of those bad things happened to Israel, but they're just done away with, right? Now it's the church. And then Christ will then, in a sense, do away with all of that stuff somehow in the church. In the church. So we're, and and that, the problem is it it creates kind of a weird like all those things happened in a literal way, but the fulfillment or the promise to do away with them is more spiritual, and it happens for us and not for Israel. Now, some of those things does mention the Gentiles, but most of those are referencing Israel. Well, I it just I don't know how else it makes sense to me. All right. Okay, and then if we go back, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning here. Guess what? That's the end of the dispensations. All right, what was the first dispensation? Innocency. What was the second one? Conscience. Number three, human government. Promise, law, grace, kingdom. Okay? All right. Well, church would be the one that replaces grace, right? Okay. But, but even, even when people refer to it as the dispensation of the church, they still re- reference it as a dispensation of grace. They still add grace into it, right? 
Those are the dispensations as given out uh, by Schofield in a 1917 version. Now, we need to finish the covenants, all right? We kind of got a pretty good idea of the Davidic covenant already, but we'll, we'll look at everything he has to say. What's the most important things that we can take from these seven dispensations? Okay, well, first, that they all supposedly are filled with testing. Yes, they're, they're filled with failure. Okay, we, we, we got that. But as far as just a, a system, can you see how this would have great impact on one's hermeneutic? Massive impact on one's hermeneutic. What seems to be the, the main thing this hermeneutic demand, demands? It, it, well, it almost, yeah, definitely demands a literal thousand-year reign. It really demands a, a couple of things. It demands a literal seeing and reading of Israel in the Old Testament and not making that the church, okay? It makes a literal understanding of land as being land, right? And that the promises to Israel will be literally fulfilled to Israel, right? And it seems to call for a clear distinction between Israel and the church. Now, he has not stated that specifically, right? but if you look at the history of dispensationalism, that's one of its key foundation principles, is that Israel and the church are to be separated. Now, that drives some people crazy because they say, well, those are two, then you have two peoples of God, but you really don't, Right? Israel as a nation has specific promises that are specific to the nation, right? Those are covenant promises to the nation. Salvation is dependent upon faith in Christ. Now, that does, it does claim that there will be a national conversion of Israel, but when Israel is converted as a nation, then they are a part of that body of believers, Right? They're a part of the body of Christ, if you want to use that term. Just the only thing is, any promises to the nation still has to be fulfilled to the nation, literally. He said, well, that's not fair. No, it has to be fair, because God made promises to... It's weird that people say, that's not fair. What wouldn't be fair is that the promises made to them are given to us. That wouldn't be the fair. It's weird that they say, no, it's not fair that... Well, well, why don't we get those promises? They weren't made for... I don't understand how that's not fair. That's, it's so weird when you st- start talking to people about this because it just... It, I don't understand. It seems to make perfect sense, right? There is... You see it... Because they, people claim, well, you're claiming there's two people of God and you're dividing things. No, all you're saying is God made a promise to Israel and all of those promises are promises to Israel. They all have to be fulfilled. God seems to have a specific way in mind to fulfill them. And that is a thousand-year reign of Christ. That seems to be the perfect place to fulfill it, right? Israel will be restored because Christ has to return first. Schofield seemed to make that clear. All those passages that we read seem to make that clear. And then once he returns, what happens? Well, they they are going to be restored, right? Their eyes are going to be open. There's going to be repentance. There's going to be faith. There's going to be national conversion. They'll be restoring to the land and then all of those promises will be fulfilled. It's never happened. So you either have to say it was never supposed to happen. It was always supposed to be the church that I don't know how then you do the hermeneutics for the rest of the Bible. Because then you don't know what's literal and what's not literal at that point, right? Uh, To me, hermeneutics falls apart. But if the thousand year, now listen, there is a problem with the thousand year system though. Let's just be honest. What's the biggest problem with the thousand-year solution to all of that? What is the biggest problem with the thousand-year solution? It sounds good, right? Christ sits on the throne. Israel's regathered. They get all the land. Boom, they're, na- they're naturally converted. Okay, not, not necessarily what happens to the church. There's a big problem with this. Nobody, no, nobody knows. All right. All the promises is that Israel will be in the land forever. That Christ will rule and reign. What happens at the end of the thousand years? Satan is released. War. And heaven and earth is destroyed. 
Well, that, that is where the new Jerusalem, but the problem is then that land, their, their promise is gone. Right. So now you can say, well, will they get the same land in the new heaven and the new earth? I don't know. That, that, I'm just saying that that's where like all millennialists will come in and say, well, there's a problem with your system. Because at a thousand years, it's over. So then that thousand years can't be a literal thousand years. It has to be a forever thousand years. Right. And that it's already underway. And those promises are not for Israel. So to me, if you're going to do that, you would have to say, well, then Israel should get the promises now and it should be forever and there should never be the destruction of the earth. But they say, no, that's, we know the earth is going to be destroyed because the Bible seems to make it clear. So we'll just take those promises from Israel, give them to us, and they'll be fulfilled spiritually. So therefore, we don't need physical land. So I can see why the amillennialist would do that. It, make, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. I mean, look, well, look, we got to be, remember, we're not committed to a system. So we've got to be fair, right? Any good, any good person, any good Bible student should say, well, wait a minute. Those say forever. Forever is not a thousand years. Forever is forever. Okay, yeah, right, okay. So the, the, only, the only other way you can deal with this is that Christ rules and reigns. Satan is released. There is destruction but there's a new heaven and a new earth and it does appear that what's going to descend? New Jer- there's going to be Jerusalem and it sounds like then I, you would have to, be, have to believe. I just don't think there's any way to get around it that, that that new earth would have the land for Israel. That would have the same measurements, the same places. I, I, I don't know what else to do at that point. Right? I mean, I, mean, I don't know what else to do other than that, he doesn't, he doesn't bother to articulate that. I know this, there was a time that people thought, well, Israel doesn't exist, so there's no way God can fulfill it. So I will say, I don't know how it's going to be fulfilled in the future, but I just know God has to fulfill it because he promised it. And if he doesn't fulfill those promises, then how can we trust any promises? And if he can take the promises for them, then he could take the promises for me. So, and not only that, the biggest issue is the hermeneutics. So I'm not saying uh, dispensationalism is like you've got to follow every tenet of it. What I appreciate from dispensationalism is they go to those Old Testament passages and they're like, we got to do something with these things. I mean, how many, I mean, how many times do we read it today? Land, right? If you take from this morning to this evening, there's going to be a king. There's going to be ruling. They're going to be prosperous. Everyone's going to be happy. They're going to be, and like all of these promises. And we know that that's never happened. So they're like, it's got to happen somewhere, somehow. And he seems to say, when the kingdom is instituted, all of these things then are fulfilled. And the only place we can do that, I don't think we can do that in the church. I just don't think it works. So when people, and sometimes I get kind of irritated if the amillennialist, they almost act like they're, they're more intellectual or they're more, they're, they are somehow hold some theological high ground that they're superior. I don't think it's a matter of being superior or one being smarter than the other. It really just comes down, what do I do with all of these promises that are in page after page after page? We saw it this morning, right? Probably this morning we read almost 10 times. That you're going to be back in the land. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to open your eyes. You're, this is, you're going to be my uh, people. I'm going to be your God. And, it's, and you're going to abide in the land forever. And no one will pluck you out. I mean, all promise after promise. How many times did we see that promise? I think it's just a matter of some people say, I got to deal with that. And I, and I think all millennialism, this is my own feelings, all millennialism tends to be a default position for those who don't want to have to figure all of this stuff out. The reason I tended to go towards amillennialism is I was trying to figure out other aspects of theology and didn't want to worry about all of the time in eschatology. When you start trying to figure all of that out, is it not a lot of work? Yeah. Is it going to be difficult? Yes. So it's easier just to say, no Israel, it's the church, the end. I, I, I do agree that's easy. But... My problem is, well, wait a minute. When I'm reading the Old Testament, if that's not Israel, if that's not Judah, if that's not land, 
how do I interpret anything? Because it's, some, it's within those same passages that promise that a virgin will have a son. That his name, right? You know what I'm saying? Like those same promises show up in, those promises show up in the very same books, right? That promises the coming of Christ and all of the coming, all, everything dealing with the first coming of Christ, we believe was fulfilled literally. So then that would seem to demand. Now, some people say, well, not everything can be literal. I agree. But just because everything isn't literal doesn't mean you just get to pick and choose what you want to throw out, right? Well, we should always go with the literal until what? Until the literal makes no sense. Until it just falls apart. Well, I mean, everything. I'm just saying we should take everything literal unless we just realize it's just not going to work. If it's just, if we just realize this doesn't make any sense, then I got no problem going, we, we abandon it. But their argument is they'll pick some passages and go, well, do you take that literal? And you'll be like, no. Well, then see, then Israel doesn't have to be literal. Well, then at that point, guess what I can do? Well, then God didn't create the world in the six literal days. The flood wasn't literal. The, the serpent wasn't literal. The fruit, like, then where do I stop, right? The exodus wasn't literal. Like, nothing was literal. Like, that's the problem. And so I do understand that, we, well, here's what I will say. If you think there's a passage that shouldn't be taken literal, then what should we do? Let's consider that passage in its context. But you can't take a principle like, well, there's some passages that aren't literal, so we just throw out the literal interpretation of the whole thing. And when you deal with Israel, they are mentioned a lot. And land is mentioned a lot. And, and, and that's my only point. So those are the dispensations. What we'll do is, if everything, I don't know how Wednesday will go. Wednesday works. If not, Sunday morning, we'll finish the covenants. If we don't do it Wednesday, we'll finish the covenants. Then we'll take a step back. We'll do a brief kind of historical summary of dispensationalism. We'll just kind of do a, a, a tour of church history to understand kind of the origins and developments of it. And then there you have it. There's dispensationalism, at least. Remember, this is called Dispensationalism 101. That's about as 101 as you can get, right? I mean, I think we went pretty in depth, right? And, and I think mixing in the covenants has been very helpful because the covenants are very much connected, and especially for that last one. The Davidic one is, is absolutely, all right, so I, nothing. Yeah, he definitely, yeah. I mean, those two are perfect. All right, then we'll just stop because we're out of time. All right, Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, I'm thankful for a place where we can come and work through these very complicated and difficult subjects. Lord, we understand that the history of Christianity is a history of theological systems where no one agrees and everyone thinks their system is correct. Lord, let us not be afraid to know these systems. Let us not be afraid to use these systems. But most importantly, let us not be bound or enslaved to a system but be bound and enslaved to your text. Forgive us for when we have failed to do that and help us as we move forward. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...